again, everyone, and Happy New Year to you all. Hope you're all doing okay. Uh, welcome back to The Longest Night, which, as I'm sure you know by now, is a little show about the HBO series Game of Thrones. My name's Rob. My name's Lizzie. And if you're returning, then you'll already know what I'm about to say next. And if you're brand new, then let me explain if you're joining us for this season. My name, as I've just said, is Rob, and I have seen... Uh, Game of Thrones numerous times over the years and I am always looking for someone else to introduce to the show as I've done many times over the years and Lizzie is the uh, next unfortunate victim in that line of people (laughs) that I'm taking through all 73 episodes of the show. Uh, You can find us on Twitter. We are at LongestNightGOT. That is LongestNightGOT if you want to carry on the discussion over there. Uh, And you can come and find me on the Narth subreddit as well. I'm one of the moderators over there, so feel free to drop in and say hello and try and guess which one I am. Um, The music that brought us in today was actually uh, me. Um, That's right, I make music. And next month in February, um, I'm putting out a new EP. And over the next few weeks, I'll be playing some of the songs from it just to kind of plug it and sell it and introduce each episode um, I work under the name Colourful Sevens, and I'll leave a link to my Bandcamp page in the show notes. You can't find the next EP that I'm releasing just yet, because it's not out yet, but you can find all my previous stuff if you like. It has been a little while since we finished Season 1, um, and Lizzie, I know that you've been going through a little bit of a social media detox of late, which is a wise move that I wish I could copy, uh, but I have to ask, because... Genuinely, I have no idea. We've not really spoken over Christmas. Um, how, how was Christmas for you? Was it was it okay? Yeah, it was really nice. It was um, it was very necessary. I think it was kind of starting to show in some of those later season one episodes where I've just clearly like I don't have the energy to talk about this as much as I'd like to, and as much as I genuinely am enjoying this show. There's that kind of hint of oh god, my brain is just fried. So you're having to do all the legwork. But yeah, I, I well, needed that break. I so don't bad. think anybody listening would say that. I think everybody listening would say that you were just as enthusiastic in the last two or three episodes as you were in the five, six or seven. So I think we'll, you know, we'll carry on with that and we'll we'll stick with that. Um, I'm flattered. <laughs> well, season two lies in front of us. So let's get to it. So today we are going to be discussing season two, episode one of Game of Thrones, which is entitled The North Remembers. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss and directed by Alan Taylor. It was first broadcast on April 1st, 2012 to an audience of 3.86 million viewers, which is a big jump from the ratings that we saw in the first season. Yeah, totally. And it might be a new season, Lizzie, but the same old questions still apply. Um, what are your general thoughts on The North Remembers? It's a really good episode. It just, it kind of flew by as I was I was watching this with a friend of mine, Layla. We were, you know, we were chatting on WhatsApp throughout this and there was that moment, like we get to the end, it's like, oh my God, that was it. That was 50 minutes just gone like that. And I definitely don't recall that about you know, the pilot episode, I I was sort of flagging at points during that. With this, there's just so much to absorb. There's, you know, it's all these new characters as well to kind of pick up on. And 
we'll get to that, I'm sure. But yeah, it's a really good episode. Yeah, I agree, actually. Um, when I did, when I last watched this episode, uh, it would be three years ago now. Um, mm. I, you know, I, I really liked this, but um, a lot of the premieres for Game of Thrones, I think you'll kind of notice this as we go along. The premiere episodes tend to be quite um, quite low on incident. There's a lot of just general housekeeping, seeing where everyone's up to, seeing where we are now. And so you go into them sort of expecting them to be kind of quiet and kind of low-key, setting things up, lots, lots of table setting and... Um, so, you know, when I watched it three years ago, as much as I really liked um, the episode generally, um, coming back to it this time, something felt very different to me, like, in a really good way. Um, I liked this way more than I think I ever used to, and mm. I forgot how funny this episode was. Lots of comedy in this episode, which yeah, yeah. I had forgotten about. Um, but I also think, more than anything, that... The way that this episode manages to pull together the fact that regardless of where they are on the map or where they are in their particular stories at the moment, or even how old they are, there's a lot of characters who are in basically the same situation in this episode, which is that they're kind of, they're having to learn, they're having to learn how to lead people. And I'm specifically thinking of Daenerys, Jon, Rob um Sansa to a degree um where there's lots of people having to learn about these new surroundings that they've been placed in like John is um you know he's Lord Commander Steward and there's that mm. really good line where he says do you want to lead one day then learn how to follow and Daenerys is suddenly at the head of this small band of people who are all very at risk and they're all kind of dying slowly in the desert as things stand and Rob Stark is leading an army and he's having to order people around and it's just and Sansa is now essentially like a first lady but um she's having to learn to manage Joffrey and also manage the people and making sure that she can play the game and even um to be honest the new uh, character that gets introduced at Dragonstone this week um Stannis is now the head of an army and he's declared himself king and yeah yeah so yeah lots of characters who are having to learn how to lead other bands of people and taking on some leverage and responsibility and i think all of the leverage that was gained in the previous episode by some characters who were at serious low points by the end of the season um are now having to apply that leverage they've gained and turn it into something more practical. And I think that while all this is going on, some scenes don't handle it quite as well, but the ones that handle it well really, really, really transform the show for me where the slow introduction of magic to the world has started in this episode in a big way. Like you get the the big comets and the religion and the Melisandre surviving the poison and, uh, well, the dragons existing, first of all, and actually being on screen. And you even get some um, quite quite interesting direwolf-related scenes in this episode as well. And it just feels like there's just this slow reminder that we are heading forwards and we are heading into something here. And I think that the white raven that arrives from the maesters at the Citadel to signal the end of summer and kind of like the beginning of like autumn-ish is this kind of period of the, not year obviously, but this kind of period of the climate 
um, is this idea that we are moving forwards and all of the stuff that happened last season hasn't been forgotten, but it's very much a very much a, a a new it is I mean it is a new season but it's very much a, a new kind of sh- story now and a new kind of show and um, I didn't really pick all that up the last time I watched this episode but this time something really clicked I really felt most of this yeah you get those those kind of hints of what the season will entail you know those those threads that will run throughout every single episode um, which yeah. I don't think I picked up on the pilot the first time but. I'm sure if I rewatched it, I might do, but it's yeah, it's clear as day here. We'll we'll obviously get to it. We killed my father, your liege lord. Do you remember your vows, sir? Of course, I remember. We can spare four masons for a week, my lord. Will that be sufficient to repair your walls? I, I believe it will. So, Bran spends the day dealing with complaints from the local townspeople. Uh, Maester Lewin has got to guide him a little bit and make sure he keeps his cool when he's getting a bit impatient. And there's people complaining about, I might as well be sleeping outside because <laughs> of the rain. And so he's got to make sure that he serves his people and he makes sure he serves them with a smile on his face. Um, and then at night, he has a dream uh, in which he sees through the eyes of his direwolf, Summer. Who, uh, Summer wanders over to the lake by the Weirwood tree in the Winterfell grounds um, and the next day he goes with Osha and Hodor to the same spot that he saw in his dream but they don't really find anything in the water but what they do witness is a red comet flying overhead um, mm. and there are lots of theories about what the comet could mean um, apparently it's red for Ned Stark's blood or it's red for joffrey's uh leadership or you know there's all sorts of rumors um but osha believes that the comet signifies uh the birth of dragons so winterfell this week it's not um not exactly a a high point this week but you know there's a lot again lots of general kind of here's where we're up to with bran stark but what did you make of the winterfell stuff this week yeah poor bran like you know, his dad's died, his mum's gone, his his siblings have all gone off to various places and he's having to deal with loquacious farmers and their petty complaints <laughs> <laughs> with, with Maester Lewin. It's like, oh God. And this, you know, my favourite line from the episode actually from Maester Lewin, he says, well, we didn't want him here all day. <laughs> yeah, well, they sent him away with the stonemasons. Yeah, yeah. And oh, well, yeah. it's it's this thing again. We've seen it in last season as well, where that line from Ban, it's like, "But all the dragons are dead," and it's like, "Oh God!" It's that kind of exposition that you, you kind of you know it as an audience member, but it does bash you over the head a little bit. It's like it symbolizes obviousness. We we know that the dragons exist, and I think we have to. You do struggle a bit to suspend your disbelief and put yourself in brand shoes it's like if you told me that dinosaurs had come back you would <laughs> you would say well they've been dead for hundreds of thousands of years why would they come back now but i don't know um i think just the sight of the comet would have been enough without them theorizing about what it might be yeah i love the um the sight of the 
comment. I think that with the brand stuff about saying all the dragons are dead, I feel like it's the show leaning really heavily into dramatic irony because obviously we're sat here going, ah, (laughs) you think they're dead. But yeah, I mean, it's so small and so kind of, you know, and it's the first episode so of the season, so it's going to be very exposition heavy, I guess. But like, I know what you mean about the sight of the comet being enough because it reminds me really strangely of... I don't know if you've ever seen the first episode of Pokemon, the po- the Pokemon TV series. I probably have, not for about 20 years, but... Well, at the very, very, very end of the episode, um, you know, Ash has suddenly been given all of this responsibility. He has mm. to look after a Pokemon that's Pikachu. They get attacked. They survive the attack. It's all very dramatic. But then at the very end of the episode, when the emotional climax has been reached and we're kind of calming down, Ash looks up at the sky and there is a a bird uh, Pokemon flying miles overhead to somewhere miles away. And I think Ash gets his Pokedex out and even the Pokedex doesn't know what that is. And all of a sudden, in that moment, after you've gone through the emotional turmoil of them being attacked earlier on in the episode and then surviving it and learning that this world is bigger and greater than Ash maybe can deal with at the moment, it Mm. then gets a hundred times larger because a Pokemon that even the Pokedex has never even heard of flies overhead to a a location that's a hundred miles away. And this is kind of how it feels in this episode where we've had the emotional turmoil of Ned Stark dying and we know that this world is brutal and we know that it's large and expansive and far too big for anybody to to yield to bring to yield and then all of a sudden just when the dragons are born and we think oh okay here we go the world expands even more and now yeah, we've got yeah. now we've got comets and comets are flying thousands of miles overhead to signify this it, this coming of magic into the world. And just when we thought we had a handle on it, <laughs> just yeah. when we thought we understood it, it just it grows again. And it's this whole other world has just opened up again. And it's a fantastic little visual motif mm. to not only explain that magic is coming into the show, but that thousands of people have seen this comet and that the characters that we're following despite where they are on the map all can see this comet from miles around and it brings all of their stories together that it's like this is a new chapter and the comet kind of signifies that it's this kind of this new chapter so yeah there's all sorts of things i mean i will kind of i don't want to throw a bucket of water on it here but the comet never comes back Um, the comment is but I kind of like that it never comes back because it is just this permanent mystery I mean Osha might be right because dragons have come back and the comet is now here but that could just be a coincidence and it could just be it it could be to do with Joffrey's um, coronation or it could be to do with Ned Stark's death or Whatever. Like, I mean, you can take it that Osha's probably right, but there is a little chance that she's not, because she doesn't know. It's just that the theory happens to be kind of right based on coincidences. And I just love that it's this permanent question mark. I love permanent question marks. (laughs) And also, you know, we've had it mentioned before that Bran is a summer child. It might be a sign of autumn. We don't know this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There is a change in the seasons are coming. For sure, 
Sure. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say particularly about the um, the meeting of the lords um, coming to complain about the various things that have gone wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's as I said before, it's like poor Bran having to, having to deal with everything else going on in his family and then just, you know, what, what do you get out of it? You just get to listen to trivial complaints about walls <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> Well, like, even yeah. in this magical, fantastical world, you can still have, you know, soul-crushing meetings about, you know, local affairs. Which is honestly what I love about this show, because yeah. just when you think it's going to get carried away with the fantasy stuff, it brings you right back down to earth with a bump with Northern Lords coming up with trivial <laughs> complaints about the conditions of their castles. and. Yeah. It's the kind of stuff that I think George R. Martin must be obsessed with, just this idea that, like, medieval history, we like to look at it as this, like, big picture where lots of big things happen when most days we're just, like, wandering around a castle bored out of your mind because what is there to do other than just look over the lands that you've got? <laughs> I mean, if, if it is a political drama with fantasy elements and this is, like, the local government side of things, where you've got to, you know, talk to your constituents and <laughs> visit, like, I don't know, roads with potholes and stuff. It's yeah. It is the equivalent. Yeah, no, it is definitely the uh definitely the equivalent, which I guess is more, you know, true to life, which I guess is um what he was going for. But you need that in a sense. You need it to ground the show, otherwise it does just become, you know, dungeons and dragons and ghouls and stuff. And it can't it can't all be that. It can't all be, you know, mile a minute stuff. It's they no. do they do still live in a human society and you will have these sort of trivial events that come to nothing. What did your brother say about them, Khaleesi? He said they meet. He didn't tell you what kind of meat. My brother didn't know anything about dragons. He didn't know anything about anything. We follow the red comet to the red waste where daenerys is stranded um and her kind of smaller callus now uh they are without food and without water and their situation is very desperate so she sends out three of her riders in three different directions to find water or food or even civilization really just anything um, and I think it's interesting that we've ended up with Daenerys here immediately because it's very much like morning after the night before where we've had the big triumphant moment where Daenerys gets her dragons, but then it kind of says, yeah, she's got her dragons, but they're really, really tiny. Mm. And she's still got loads of people to look after. And she's still stuck in a desert with nobody for miles around. Yep. So... Yeah, it kind of would go in this direction. It's not the big triumphant victory that we maybe thought it was, but um, I, um, it's a kind of a slight scene. Um, around this period of season two, there is a lot of just kind of like checking in with Daenerys and the Red Waste, seeing how they're getting on. Like it's quite a, quite a slow moving uh, plot for Daenerys this season, but. Um, what did you make of what's happened in this episode so far? The yeah, so I, like I, I did kind of gather that this season's tone would be, you know, them trying to survive and also 
the threat of the dragons being stolen somehow by I don't know where they pass through and who might be who might they encounter. Um, mm. I suppose we should just get this out of the way. Those dragons are adorable. And there's a little bamboo yeah. cages. Oh, <laughs> can we get one? I know when they're they, when they're so tiny, you just kind of oh, there are more adorable moments to come. It's great. Yeah. Oh, you you just wait until she starts training them to breathe little fire things so that she can heat up a little piece of beef. It's great. Aww. It's it's awesome. Um, but um, the I suppose the only thing with um, that I did kind of note down about this um, slight scene is that as much as they're dragons, they are her children. And yeah, when you true. when you have children, I imagine the one of the first things you worry about is oh my God, what if I lost them? And as soon as you have something that you've waited so long for, you worry about it going away. And so as much as her dragons are sticking to her and she's, you know, trying to keep them safe, there is this immediate threat, as you say, like with this kind of vast landscape that rolls out in front of them, that there is this immediate panic that kind of sets in, that they are kind of, if they were to be attacked, they are defenceless. Well, and that, and she's no so, stranger to loss, as we saw in the end of the last season, that she's lost her mm. army, she's lost her husband, she's lost her brother, even though she kind of watched him be killed. But, you know, she, <laughs> she's she's lost a lot in the span of, you know, the last season. And as much as having the dragons is this huge thing, it's, it's fragile. They are, you know, they're hatchlings, basically. Yeah, they've become a responsibility for now. Yeah. Because they're so so small. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have anything more to say about the Red Waste scenes, really. Well, I mean, I don't know if I imagined them to be... I don't, I don't know why I sort of imagined we'd go into season two and there'd be these huge hulking things like flying hmm. across vast expanses of land. But it's it's weird how going from one season of a show to another, there's... It's like how time works. I was, I was watching Breaking Bad recently and towards the end of the last season, there's a, there's a line, without being spoilery, something like, oh, well, this mayhem during the past year. And it's like, fucking hell, it's only been a year. And this yeah. is a show of, what, five, six seasons? Um, so, yeah, it's just how how time works like that and how you think that the divide between one season and another is it can be years and years when in fact this could be like a week from when yeah. we last saw them and i think that the comet in the sky kind of ties together the fact that they are out, they are all kind of experiencing these bits at the same point yeah um but i kind of love how like potentially you know like the the, the comet is for the dragons but Daenerys doesn't really know that She's yeah. the person that yeah. the comet is for, but she's the only person who doesn't look at the comet and go, "Oh, I wonder if that's for me." Like everyone else <laughs> seems to talk about it, but um... <laughs> ah, that that'll show him. <laughs> <laughs> who am I? Who am I? Lord Commander. And who are you? Jon Snow. Who are you? You're steward. You want to lead one day. Learn how to follow. The other place um, where we follow the comet to, um, and the last place that we follow the comet to, is uh, Craster's Keep. 
which is a uh, place beyond the wall. Um, the Night's Watch have arrived there. Um, Craster keeps his daughters as his wives, but John notices that he apparently has no sons. Um, just to fill you in as well, Craster is kind of like, he's a wildling, but he's kind of like an ally to the Night's Watch. He's kind of like a guy who makes his own way and lives on his own and has a house and he's a he's an occasional ally for the night's watch um so he has no loyalty to the wildlings either even though he is uh one uh craster mentions that he hasn't seen benjamin stark and that the wildlings for miles around have all gone to join up with mance raider uh who is the king beyond the wall who is planning to march an army south uh, John gets a bit kind of mouthy with Craster when it's suggested that those from south of the wall are southerners. Uh, but Lord Commander Mormont kind of steps in, calms the situation down, and then disciplines John for meh, speaking out of turn, I would say. Um, so, <laughs> I guess the first thing to mention, by the way, um, is that we have a new character in the, uh, the scene at the beginning. Mm. The person who remarks that um, all the wildlings around here have disappeared and Craster's still here. He must be doing something right. That is Dolorous Ed, who is a, a new character. Ed Edison Tollett is his name, but Dolorous is just this nickname that he gets. Um, okay. And he is played by Stockport's own Ben Crompton. Oh, um, okay. So um, just a little thing. I have spoken to Ben Crompton a couple of times um, in the past Right. About four, wow, nearly four years ago now, um, he did a little stand-up comedy night in Stockport at the Masonic Guildhall on the A6. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the road, that, sorry to everyone, the A6 is a road that runs through <laughs> Stockport. And it runs all the way up to Carlisle, actually, but, you know. Um, and uh, he was first on the bill, actually. Uh, last on the bill was the psychic from Phoenix Knights, uh, who was doing that act. Oh, my so, God. Yeah. Um, that was fun. Um, but afterwards, I spoke to him, and um, so I spoke to him about, you know, um, the stuff that he'd done on Game of Thrones. So he remains the only member of the cast I've spoken to, um, wow. actually spoken words to and uh, spoken with. I'm hoping to change that, but we'll uh, we'll see where that goes. But um, So, yeah, the Night's Watch, they get to um, Craster's. Forgive me my name dropping there for about five minutes, but... Um, <laughs> Um, what do you make of Craster? Because, wow, is that guy, like, I don't know, he's a, a sight to behold and a really difficult person to tolerate. Yeah, I mean, the show's not short of creeps, is it? <laughs> no. He's he's one of a great many. And it's also not, not short of incestuous tyrants, apparently. And so no. we've got another feud between a Stark and one of one of these types yes um i i find it kind of interesting how craster seems to talk down to lord commander mormont so much because he mm. kind of he's been given a position i think john's perfectly within his rights here to be honest because as much as it's kind of necessary for the night's watch to have craster as an ally there are loads of them and one of him yeah and true. yet he manages to hold a room and basically gain the upper hand um i've no i've not quite worked out how that dynamic works i guess he's like a valuable scout for them or something but um john's perfectly within his rights to maybe 
contest him a little bit and be a bit curious about what the hell he does with his sons. And, like, with Lord Commander Mormon, um, I also think he's right to maybe dress John down a little bit if Craster is a valuable um, a valuable ally, kind of, beyond the wall. He's a bit of a complex ally, but I guess that's maybe the beautiful thing about the show, which is that it's not afraid to hold two or three points of view about a situation at the same time, where yeah. there are two people in the right here, even if their views contradict each other. Um, and watching these scenes, um, I think it would be very easy to make Craster like very one dimensional and just, yeah. uh, but he's, he's, there is something to him. That's yeah. Just... He's, he's not just some, some random horrible prick. He, he does hold something over, you know, the night's watch because it, it is a sense of, well, you know, I'm. I might not have offer much, but beyond the wall, who else is there? What is there? You. There is nowhere else you can go for refuge, essentially. Hmm. Um. I do want to ask, and obviously I won't give you the answer because the question will be answered at a later date. Because mm. hey, they've brought it up. What do you think happens to Craster's sons? I think. Um. Well. It can go one of two ways. I was thinking either A, they get sent to, you know, the wall to be part of the Night's Watch, or B, they get essentially fed to the White Walkers. Okay. Um, yeah, both. I think they're both pretty solid theories there. Hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, that, I think I can easily track your logic with those. So, yeah, that's. I think that's a, a really, uh, really good place to to leave that and park it, and we will find out what happens to his sons at a later date. Lord of light, come to us in our darkness. We offer you these false gods. Take them and cast your light upon us. For the night is dark and full of terrors. The night is dark and full of terrors. We're going way into the south now, and we're going to go to a, a brand new location! New location! <gasps> oh my god. Dragonstone. Good old Dragonstone, which is Great an name, island. Great name, by the way. Yeah, fantastic name. Um, it is just off the coast of King's Landing. Um, in order to, like, uh, access King's Landing, you have to kind of, like, come inland slightly down the Blackwater Rush, which is, right. like, the name of the map. You know, like... Um, if it was to be on a map of England, you would have mm. to... Do you know the wash that separates, like, Yorkshire from Norfolk? Oh, yeah. It's like, it's yeah. like a square piece of... Uh, it's like a square bay. If King's Landing's in that square bay, um, then Dragonstone is just kind of, like, north Norfolk coast. Like, it's not visible from King's Landing, but it's about 50 miles away by sea or something. So, brand new location, and we open on a beach on Dragonstone, where we meet Stannis Baratheon, who was mentioned a few times last season, and now we meet him, and here he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is with the Lady Melisandre, uh, as people pledge their allegiances to a Lord of Light and burn statues of the Seven Gods. Um, and a man named Maester Cresson is worrying about the influence that Melisandre is having, but any pleas he seems to make to Melisandre, to the people on the beach, to um, Davos, who is the other guy that he speaks to, they kind of fall on deaf ears a little bit. 
Um, Stannis declares himself the rightful king and sends letters all across the Seven Kingdoms stating that Joffrey is a Lannister bastard born of incest, born of incest and not a Baratheon. Um, and Melisandre, who is a red priestess uh, of the Lord of Light, holds a lot of influence over Stannis. Um, Maester Cresson attempts to kill her in like a murder-suicide, uh, but she is completely unaffected by the poison that takes his life immediately. So we got brand new location, four brand new characters, and one of them that gets taken away from us. So three brand new characters, really, uh, that are, you know, named. Um, what do you make of this this new set, these new people? Tell me. I mean, there's not much you can really take notes of, because obviously with the first time you see something, you can only sort of take in what you're given but i will say that melisandre has the coolest look in the in the show by far oh cool tell me more yeah just that you know that kind of red hair and the the hype yes i'm all in favor i look forward to seeing more of this yeah good old uh carries van houten as well really pulls it off just yeah uh, totally (laughs) but Um, i mean it's they're new characters but it's a family that we're somewhat familiar with yes so yeah, this with is the baratheon name yeah the baratheons you know coming to claim what is what should be theirs because as they mentioned joffrey is not robert baratheon's son hmm. yeah totally i mean they are right um and stannis technically is the rightful king because he's the brother of robert baratheon and the throne should just go to him yeah because he's the oldest brother and um, there's a little thing that gets mentioned in the episode um, later on, but might as well be worth bringing up now, is that Renly, uh, Stannis' other brother, um, the lords of the Stormlands um, and most lords in the south have pledged themselves to him. So Stannis Mm. is kind of alone. And so he takes up the seat of Dragonstone, which has been abandoned for about 20 years. Um, basically, that was where um, Daenerys was when she fled from Westeros. She was at Dragonstone. It, it's a Targaryen place. It's got a lot of Targaryen history. Um, the big the big table that was in the middle of the mall, that's known as the Painted Table. And it's a map of Westeros that's a table. So it's a oh, giant wow, okay. map. Um, you'll get... That. That gets more prominence as we go um, through this season. Um, You'll see various locations on the map of the table. Um, But that was, um, yeah, so it's a big, it was a former Targaryen stronghold that it isn't anymore. And so Stannis has gone there and declared himself for, um, uh, as rightful king and for the Lord of Light. Um, The, there is a scene in this particular plotline that I am not a massive fan of, which is the murder-suicide thing, because I don't think it's communicated all that well what's going on, and I no. don't think we spend long enough with Maester Cresson to believe that he would kill himself in order to protect Stannis from Lady Melisandre's influence it all feels a little bit like if you'd read the books you're just sort of supposed to assume everything about this scene and if you've not read the books it can be a little rushed and seem a little out of nowhere i think it does a good job of explaining that melisandre's power is 
clearly immense. And yeah, as yeah. she says, uh, the fire burns them all away. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know. It's not the best moment in the episode, I don't think. It's a bit odd, I think. It's a, a bit, bit strange. sudden, isn't it? I feel like they could have yeah. maybe stretched this out to another episode or two. To, cause we, I don't think we really learn why Crescent is so concerned and so we unsure about kind you know. of do it's a religious thing it, again it's something that once you know the show and like you know you're watching it back and so the statues that they're burning on the beach are hmm. of the seven gods which is the big religion in Westeros the 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 seven hmm. uh, where you have the mother the father, Mason, Crone, all these names of the gods. It's not worth remembering all of them. Um, and I think that I think that Melisandre is uh, well. Melisandre's religion, um, the Lord, following the Lord of Light, and other, sometimes known as the Red God. Um, that is a religion that is born in Essos. And so okay. it's this idea of a foreign religion and quite a dogmatic foreign religion being right. imported and being bled into the minds of the next king, rightfully. Like, And so Crescent is concerned about it on religious grounds, but I'm not sure that's enough. It feels a little bit like it would descend into sectarianism if it was an, a lot of religious fighting. and But it, it I don't think it quite wants to deal with that. I think it's just we're supposed to assume that Maester Crescent is so set in his ways with the Light of the Seven and with the Seven Gods that any kind of exterior influence feels like a threat. But I don't know if emotionally we track him all the way to a murder-suicide. No, I'm not I'm not convinced either. It feels like he overplays his hand. A little bit. Uh yeah. But to be honest, it's a completely new thing that the show is trying on here, like this sudden massive influence of religion and magic. And so I think because this is the first time that we get a storyline that is defined and dominated by magic and religion that I think we have to forgive it ever so slightly for just kind of trying something new, maybe not getting it dead on, but it's there, it's intriguing, we don't know where it's going, and I think that's enough to kind of stay with it now. I think they've kind of, the dynamics are already set up where um, you in, you're introduced to Davos, uh, who's kind of like um, Stannis' right-hand man, mm. Um and to be honest, his position's kind of been taken by uh, Melisandre. He's now um, sort of third, a sort of like um, assistant to the assistant. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, Davos was sympathetic to Maester Crescent, but he keeps telling him, don't do it, don't do it. What are you doing? Don't be so stupid. Can we not do this another way? Um, so... Yeah, the dynamics are all set up now. Um, I should mention as well that the guy who was writing the letter uh, that kept having to be rewritten and changed, um, that was Davos's son. That's Mathos. Okay. 
Um, so that's just, uh, I think that's just worth mentioning. I don't know if you have anything more to say about the uh, Dragonstone scenes particularly. Uh, not in particular, but it is, it's kind of an interesting little fork in the road between, you know, the Stark Lannister war, because now we've got this other party who doesn't, who doesn't want to side with either of them. There's a kind of mutual distrust there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah a, thir- a third <laughs> player three has entered the game. I mothered more than just rebels. In fact, you seem to have forgotten. If I trade the Kingslayer for two girls, my bannerman will string me up by my feet. You want to leave Sansa in the Queen's hands? And Arya? I haven't heard a word about Arya. What are we fighting for if not for that? It's more complicated than that. You know it is. Rob informs Jamie of the communication that he's received from Stannis that Joffrey is a bastard born of incest and not the rightful heir to the throne. Mm-hmm. They have a little war of words that Rob wins with a little show of force. Uh, Grey Wind, his direwolf, comes to threaten Jamie, who uh, soon shuts up when the direwolf so, uh, turns up. Um, Alton Lannister, who was a prisoner captured during the last battle. We've not seen him before, but um, he was captured while Rob was fighting the Lannisters. Um, he will be sent to King's Landing with peace terms that Rob knows Tywin will reject. Um, Theon is sent to the Iron Islands to convince his father, Balon Greyjoy, to join the Northern cause. Um, and Catelyn warns Rob against trusting Balon Greyjoy uh, because of the Greyjoy Rebellion from a few years ago. Uh, but she is sent to negotiate an alliance with Renly. Um so, what have you... Again, not much really happening here, but more stuff for future episodes, I think. So, what did you make of the stuff with Rob's army this week? Yeah, as you say, it's more, you know, setting up for future events. But I will say that that scene with Jamie and Rob is very good. I genuinely love that chat, you know, they had between... Well, between the two of them, where it's oh yeah, of, Yeah, it's like, you think my father's going to negotiate with you. You don't know him very well. No, but he's starting to know me. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there's all sorts of... Um, there's some really good sparring going on there. Like I love the... Um, what is it? Like, the line that Jamie says, something about Rob only winning three battles, and then Rob's like, ah, better than three defeats, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's true. And then he gets <laughs> Grey Wind out, and he's like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, is Grey, is Grey Wind CG? Uh Yeah. Um, yeah. they have to film the direwolves the direwolves are complicated in the show there are some moments of CGI that are a bit ropey there are some where it is CGI and there are some where it's not CGI and the bits where they are CGI get quite difficult mm. um, like they had to film them separately like most of this show was filmed in like Europe obviously um, but the direwolves had to be done separately because they were based on like a commune in Canada or something like that, and they had to film them separately, and um, I think it's the one bit of the show, CGI-wise and creatures-wise, that just falls short of the mark and doesn't quite look real. Because yeah, I think the dragons look better than the direwolves in this episode. Well, it's too far the other way, I think. In the last season, it felt like the direwolves just looked like, you know, huskies. But mm. in, in this particular theme, it's, you know, it's this huge hulking thing and it's got that hyper-realistic fur and it just, it looks a little bit too real. You're kind of crossing over into uncanny territory. Well, I think they are, they are real direwolves, 
Right. Like, well, not, obviously, direwolves aren't real, but you know, like they, they are, they are wolves. But mm. the way that they've had to render them into the show, it looks functional and serviceable, and you could believe that the dog is there. Mm. But it just, yeah, like you say, there is something slightly uncanny valley about it. Something slightly off. It feels like you can see the edges of the direwolf on the shot. Yeah, that's and exactly it. Like, and it feels like the actors know that it's not there. Um, but honestly, like, at this early stage, like, with the budget they've got and everything like that, they do a pretty good job, I think. But in later seasons, the CGI and creature animal stuff is just unbelievable. Hmm. There's some of the stuff that they pull off in later seasons that they've got. So, you know, at, at this early stage, I think the dragons look pretty good. I think, you know, they look real. They look kind of adorable. Um, the direwolves look real in their little bit of the frame, but the way that they interact with the rest of the frame maybe feels like there's a little bit missing slightly that makes it feel more natural. Um, but it's I, it's such a, a minor thing in this episode, and especially even in that scene where Rob and Jamie really get to... really sort of go to town on each other with regards to... Um, their war of words that they have. And it's something that in the end can only be, um, it's an argument that neither of them were going to win until Grey Wind showed up and shut Jamie up. Well, yeah. And as much as kind of Rob wins the argument, Jamie does ultimately have the best point in that Tywin is not going to negotiate. It's like, no, I think Rob knows that. Yeah. So it's like, as much as you can say, you know, they, they pushed Bram because of, you know, discovering Jamie with Cersei, the only well, they only have their word for that. There's no, you know, there's no evidence. There's nothing they can really show no. to say that this happened. It's just, it's. They need to get that book that Ned had. Get, oh, they yeah. need to get that book out. That'll prove everything. <laughs> see, see, look here, black hair, black hair, black hair, blonde. No. See... <laughs> It must yeah. be. Um, but yeah, there's a couple of things that are just kind of set up for later episodes here. Like Theon has been sent home to the Iron Islands to get his father involved with the Northern cause. Mm. Um, and uh, Catelyn's been sent to negotiate an alliance with Renly uh, for a little while. Um, so that's where they're going to pop up in the next episode. So uh, like Renly's back. Um, after season one, and uh, we're going to go to the Iron Islands for the first time uh, in future episodes. So, yeah, some new new locations. Uh, Looking forward to uh, going and seeing those. Knowledge is power. Seize him. Cut his throat. Stop. Wait. I've changed my mind. Let him go. Step back three paces. Turn around. Close your eyes. Power is power. We watch King Joffrey's name day tournament, um, during which Sir Dontos Hollard is late to a duel and is punished by essentially being drowned in wine until Sansa calls a stop to this torture. Uh, Dontos is instead given the role of being Joffrey's court fool. Uh, Tywin, uh, sorry, 
Tyrion arrives back in the capital and reveals to Cersei that he has been named Hand of the King uh, because Tywin's uh, doing stuff with the Lannister army. Uh, Tyrion is also hiding Shay in his chambers, but for now she seems to love, just love being in the city and she's excited to have come with him. Um, Cersei tasks uh, Peter Baelish with trying to find Arya Stark, who went missing at the end of last season. Uh, when Baelish prods her about the rumours regarding her and Jaime and this um, uh, this thing that Stannis has sent out, this accusation, uh, she responds by threatening his life with these four armed guards that she has under her control at all times. Um, Joffrey's redecorating the throne room and confronts Cersei about Stannis's letter. Um, he also mentions that Robert must have had thousands of bastards all over the city because he'd grown tired of Cersei. And Cersei then slaps Joffrey across the face for that. Um, and then Janoslint and the City Watch carry out the citywide massacre of all those considered to be Robert Baratheon's bastards who may have a claim to the throne. But the one bastard who's escaped, unbeknownst to him, um, is Gendry. He, mm-hmm. Gendry has already escaped the capital with Arya and the rest of Yorin's Night's Watch recruit. I mean, he's not tremendous. He's not escaped the capital. He's just left the capital, but he's yeah, got away with yeah. his life. So, um, lots of stuff in King's Landing this week. Talk me through it. So, yeah. Um, a lot of Joffrey, isn't there? <laughs> more more bastardry from Joffrey. Good old Joffrey. Horrible, horrible Joffrey. Um, there was, I mean, it was good to see Tyrion finally come back to King's Landing. There was that it was like a, you know, fist pump moment of like, oh my god, finally someone. And who can, can you actually... believe as well, this is the first time we've actually seen him in King's Landing. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah. I, I didn't even consider it until I was actually writing up the notes for this episode. I was like, oh shit, he's not actually we've not even seen him there before. But it's yeah, it's finally you, we've got somebody who can sort of stand up to Joffrey and Cersei in a way, which I don't I don't really think we had in the last episode. Or throughout the whole last season, really. Maybe, no, but again, no. Tyrion was the only person who could get away with it. Uh, well, like, in, yeah, in the second I'm telling episode. Mother. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, no, he is wonderful. Tyrion's great in this episode. Just, he is. He is hysterical in this episode. He is, he is just so funny. Like the... Um, the saying to Cersei that one of her good features is her cheekbones, like that's uh, that's class stuff. I love that. I mentioned he was like poochie in this episode, <laughs> just like showing up, and it's like at all times <laughs> if Tyrion's not on screen, people would should be asking, "Where's, Where's Tyrion?" Tyrion? <laughs> <laughs> no, he is. Um, he really is fantastic in this episode. Um, I also think another little secret MVP of this episode is Sansa, who is learning now to just play the game a little bit and just to yeah, placate Joffrey a little bit more and all of this like I am loyal to my beloved Joffrey and my King Joffrey is so brave and I love my Joffrey and then Tyrion's like of course and mm. of course Tyrion sees right through it but nobody else does and um, there's just a little and also there's a little connection that's formed because of the last episode between the Hound and Sansa where the Hound kind of backs Sansa up this kind yeah. of like bullshit thing she's come up with to try and stop Sedontos from being killed, and the the Hound is sort of like, uh, yeah, I, I read that um, once. <laughs> that 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 sounds that sounds right. Um, but 
Yeah, um, Sansa's a real hero uh, in this episode. She starts to, well, starts to apply, again, it's a lot of this episode is about characters applying things that they learn in the season finale, and um, the season finale, Sansa learns maybe just to be a bit more patient with Joffrey and to calm him down a little bit instead of trying to escalate the situation with him and well she's yeah she, now she's growing that. into like more of a thinking type than a feeling type as much as i don't really believe in myers-briggs classifications for characters who don't actually exist it's a good way but, of putting it though it is a yeah. good way of putting it that she is being more patient and she's thinking before she speaks now and yep. yeah um no definitely and it's amazing, really, watching Tyrion come back in at this same moment because it's like, ah, finally, Tyrion and Sansa might be able to stand up to Joffrey and Cersei and maybe change their minds and, you know, maybe get on their good side and maybe yeah. it won't be total misery in King's Landing anymore. <laughs> well, straight away, he has a great point. He kind of he says to Sansa, like, I'm sorry for the loss of your father, which I think Joffrey's a bit sort of um, not he happy was, with. He was a he... traitor. Yeah, but he mentions to Joffrey, he's like, hey, your, didn't your dad die recently? <laughs> yeah. It's funny, that. Then again, Joffrey's heart barely beats. Um, yeah, pretty much. I, I, well, I suppose we'll come to the end of the events in King's Landing. and. Oh, my God, yeah. Um, probably, the. would you say, the darkest scene we've had so far? Oh, God, yeah, murdering babies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Fucking hell. Um, I've got to say, just while we're on the brothel... I don't know if you picked up that Roz was directly mimicking Littlefinger's dialogue from last season. Yeah, I did. Because I, I, I was kind of, when the scene started, I thought, like, oh God, we're, we're doing this again, aren't we? <laughs> and then there was that, that turn to, you know, what eventually happened. It was like, oh God. And I realised at this point how much I sort of valued Roz. I was like, oh my God, don't hurt Roz. She is the closest thing we have to, like, a neutral character. Yeah, I would agree there. She's kind of in and out, doing things, not doing things. Like, she's yeah, kind yeah. of running the place now. And, I mean, I don't like the fact that she just directly mimics Littlefinger's dialogue. It's very unnatural just to, to have any idea how ridiculous you sound. And then it, even down to the clean yourselves, you're both working tonight. And well, is it is it not like a tongue-in-cheek thing from the writers? Like, yeah, we know that scene was a bit much. So. Maybe there there could be an ele- there could be an element of that definitely because when she was like when we enter the scene and that woman is screaming and it's like oh god I'd forgotten about the volume of this um, mm. but they you know they quickly cut away from it and so Roz is running the place now and that's great for her um, that she has some value in King's Landing now so much value in fact that she's now running the ship uh, while Littlefinger goes off and does all of his small council duties and things like that. Just a little thing mm. to mention, by the way, that I did mention at the start of the episode. Uh, we do get that White Raven showing up to say that summer is ended. Um, white yep. Ravens are, show, are used to explain to everybody else that uh, a season has ended and a new one is about to begin. So this is kind of, they don't really have autumn. They do just kind of have summer and winter, but this is kind of like the beginning of the transition into winter. Sure. So we're like you know, like summer's lasted for the longest ever, this autumn will last a bit of time and then winter will inevitably, you know, another white raven might be sent out and that's what we're supposed to infer from that scene. Um, My favourite scene in King's Landing this week, though, is definitely the scene between Littlefinger and Cersei where 
they manage to the show manages to deconstruct and turn on its head this idea of knowledge is power. Yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. Um, it's so good. Just the cut his throat. Oh, oh wait, I've changed my mind. Turn around, <laughs> stare at the wall, close your eyes, and then it's like just the proper mic drop. Like power is power, motherfucker. And like it's yeah, no, it's well, awesome. I love you've it. mentioned the other great Cersei scene from this this week's episode, but my personal favourite scene is the slap. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. The sl- it's that you know just that moment where you know Joffrey's going off on one is saying, "Oh, I'm sure you were fucking men left and right," and then just that, and the whole room goes silent. Yeah, the decorating's everyone suddenly goes up, oh. like five ten <laughs> seconds. <laughs> But it's it's the first time we really see Cersei not just being kind of cold and unemotional and, you know, just doing what she can for Joffrey. It's the first sign that, you know, she has feelings herself as well. She's not just going to be subservient to him because, you know, he's her son. Well, she doesn't heed her own warning from the previous scene that she's in, which is that she says to Littlefinger that power is power. And then she gets a a hell of a reminder that power is power when Joffrey just says, what you did just is punishable by death. You will not do that again. And, oh, Jack Gleeson, man, he's such a terrific evil guy. Like, the way that he holds his teeth, it's like he gives himself some kind of underbite when he says you will never do it again. Yeah. Yeah. And, I know exactly oh, what you mean. Yeah. It's just so much anger in his face <laughs> and resentment and And he does that thing where he oh. sort of you know where they tilt their head down and their eyes sort of come to the to the top. It's kind of the um Yeah. The the Kubrick stare. Yes, yeah, the, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's a really good way of putting it. Um yeah. and then I mean, do you have... I mean, obviously, it's not really a spoiler to say, but I'll ask you anyway. Who do you think gave the order about uh, killing all of Robert's bastards? Well, I would have assumed Joffrey. Yeah, yeah, it's Joffrey, yeah. It wouldn't have surprised me if it was Cersei. Well, some people do assume um, that it is Cersei because it's never actually stated. It's just kind of implied. But, um, yeah, it's it's Joffrey. He is aware... Hmm that there might be bastards all over the city and all over the country. Um, mm. So, uh, and now Gendry has been identified by his helmet and they're going to go after him um, in the city watch. And Gendry, though, is already miles out of King's Landing. So good luck catching him. <laughs> also, we bookend the episode with helmets resembling animals. We open with the sword fight with the hound. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, and then we end with the, um, ah. you know, Gendry on the back of the, uh, of the, not not truck, but you know it's what like I mean. Like a trailer thing, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's fantastic. Um, that's a great parallel that I'd actually never noticed before. So yeah, yeah I love that, that you brought in and out of the episode on pretty similar visual uh, motifs there. But I think that is, um, that's sort of everything I think we've got to discuss for this week. So I've got to ask... Um, who is your loser this week? Who's your least favourite? Is it any surprise that it's Joffrey? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it's going to be many, I feel many like we're going to say times. this every week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yep. Right, yeah, I don't think I need to go into that. But um, I'm curious about who your winner is this week. Who's your favourite? Well, the winner this week is Tyrion. It's just cool. having him in King's Landing is just like, yes, I needed that. I couldn't have this like constant misery of, Tyr- of um, Joffrey basically running roughshod over everything. You need that that balance and is there anybody better than Tyrion for that absolutely not all right that's 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 all i have to say yeah brilliant okay um before we go um i would just like to say that we have an interview uh coming later this season but it's going to be split into two parts um the first half will be posted after episode five so after season two episode five and the second half will be posted after our season two finale. Uh, the interview is with Sam from the Cry Wolf uh, podcast. Uh, but you, if you're listening, will likely know her as the woman who sat at the front and center of all of those Burlington Bar Game of Thrones reaction videos. Uh, she was the one with the really dark hair and the really thick black framed glasses uh, and the one with the loudest and largest reactions to what was happening on screen. Um, you will definitely want to hear what she has to say about the show. And I would highly recommend that if you finish the show, you go and listen to Crywolf podcast. It is not necessarily about Game of Thrones itself. And it's not necessarily about the details of the plot or the show. But it is about how people feel about Game of Thrones and how they came to Game of Thrones. And... She is a clinical psychologist and she is interested in the relationship that we have uh, as, as people trying to make our way through life, a uh, relationship with the media that we watch and why Game of Thrones captured the hearts of so many people. So by all means, go and check that out. It's um, Crywolf Podcast, a love letter to Game of Thrones. I will leave a, a link to that show in our show notes. Um, speaking of the show notes, um, the music that's playing is that right now is mine and i will leave links as i said to uh, my band camp and stuff like that and you'll be hearing a couple more songs that i've written before february when the ep gets released um lizzie welcome to season two of game of thrones can't wait for next week yeah uh next week we have the nightlands which is season two episode two the nightlands and yeah we'll be we'll just be back for that so see you then see you then